Christ our standard. Two, Christ our substitute. Three, Christ our Savior. Look at the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins, praise the Lord, in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's look together. Let's gaze together at these three wonderful characteristics of Jesus Christ. Look first at Christ, our standard. You know, Jesus Christ shows us not only how to live for the glory of God, but listen, He shows us the extent of our submission and the price of our suffering. He is the very model for everything that He, through the Holy Spirit, is commending to us and commanding us here in 1 Peter chapter 2. We ought not to think that we're being called to something that is different than that to which our Lord was, was called. Some of you may remember what it was like when you learned how to write. The teacher would lightly trace or outline the letters for you, and then what would you do? You'd take your pencil, back when we used pencils, you would take your pencil and you would trace that letter. You would outline those letters over and over again until you learned how to write it. You would need to know each curve and each bend of that letter. I remember my teachers teaching me how to write, you know, in cursive. And my last name, Fout, begins with an F, the most difficult letter in the English. You got to do this and do this. And she would put these little perfect. And man, I couldn't get that. It was so difficult. I still can't get it today. So I just kind of do that. And it looks right. And but anyway, you would just follow their lead. You would look at the curves and bends of those letters. And that's exactly what the word in verse 21, example, means. When he says, leaving you an example, it, it means that the Lord Jesus Christ drew a pattern for us to trace. He pressed his footsteps in the pathway, and now we simply need to follow those footprints. In other words, he is our standard. Our standard for what? Well, he's our standard for living, isn't he? So that you might follow in his steps. He's our standard for living. The Lord Jesus Christ shows us how to live life. You look at him and what do you see? You see a man who is filled with the word of God. You see a man who is always about the father's business. Pray like Jesus. Think of others like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Understand the scriptures like Jesus. The prayer of the Christian is to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, in fact, in Galatians 4.19, that's the essence of the Christian life. Having Christ formed in you. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. Christ is our standard for living. 
you look at him as he's revealed in the scriptures and you learn how to live the Christian life in difficult days. But not only is he our standard for living, Peter gets more to his point here and he says, he's our standard for suffering. He's our standard for suffering. Look again at verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Look at this. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus not only showed us how to live, Jesus showed us how to suffer. He walked the path. Listen, friends, his footprints are still there. So you keep looking to Jesus and longing for the Holy Spirit to do a work in your life of conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We want to see Jesus formed in us. That's our prayer. That's always been the longing of the Christian. That's why we gather together. That's why we sing. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we practice all of the one another's that we read about in the Bible so that Christ is formed in us. And when you look to Christ, you'll learn how it is that you can suffer. How do you suffer? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the weeping prophet. Look at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in Luke 19. Look at Jesus longing for those who do not recognize the work of God in the world. See Jesus weeping at the graveside of Lazarus. See him weeping in the garden of Gethsemane. See him grieving over those women who were mourning him as he was carrying his cross. That's how to suffer. Not with vengeance. Christ did not utter one word of vengeance, but only trust. The poet said, plagues and deaths around me fly. Till he please, I cannot die. Not a single shaft can hit till the God of love sees fit. We don't revile in return for reviling. We don't threaten. We don't hate and, we see, and seek to lash out. That's a hard lesson for us, isn't it? But Jesus shows us how to suffer. You want to know how to suffer as a Christian? In the midst of your suffering, forgive. In the midst of your suffering, forgive others as Jesus did. See the lost as they truly are. Ignorant of God and of Christ. See them. See them as they will be in their torment. And let your soul grieve over their plight. In the midst of our suffering, that's when God is turning up the heat, as it were. The, the preciousness, you know, the preciousness of a precious metal is revealed in the heat. That's when the dross comes to the top and the wise silversmith continues to, to screen that dross off, to screen the impurities off. And he knows that the metal is ready when he can see his own reflection in the molten metal. Don't despair, friends. In fact, don't despise the sufferings that you endure right now. And look, that's a hard thing to say. Because I look out over this, this, this congregation and I know people who are suffering in great ways. And I'm telling you, don't despair and do not despise that suffering. But look to Christ, which means what? Trust Christ. Appreciate Christ. Honor Christ. Christ, worship Christ, rely on Christ, pray to Christ, speak about Christ, read about Christ as the one who is carefully and continuously working 
to bring you his own treasured possession into, into to, to his glorious conformity. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is our standard for our living. He's our standard for our suffering. He's our standard for our dying. You see what he says there? The end of verse 23. He did not threaten, but what? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Someone once said that we won't really know how to live until we know how to die. How did the Lord Jesus Christ die? He died entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And what hope there is in that. There is so much injustice around us, isn't there? So much injustice in this world. It doesn't seem like there can be many just rulings from unjust judges and unjust politicians and and an unjust economy. There's so much injustice all around us. Our world is a world of injustice. Just think of it. There is so much we don't know. Yet the Christian simply entrusts himself to a God who is the faithful judge. He says in 1 Peter 4.19 to to a faithful creator. Let me take you to, just in your minds right now, to the last words of Jesus. Luke chapter 23, as he was dying on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, he said this. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. In this word, Jesus ultimately fulfills the word of the psalmist in Psalm 31. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. How is Jesus dying? He's dying with the word of God In his mouth. I remember. I've told you before the story of Roy Fry. Some of you remember Roy Fry. A dear old saint of years gone by. And I remember sitting by his bedside. His mind wasn't there. He couldn't remember anything. And in fact he hadn't talked for days. And I sat there by his bedside. and, And knelt down next to his ear. And started reciting to him John 14. Right? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Roy, who hadn't been conscious for days, his mouth started mouthing those same words along with me. Spurgeon said, What a proof it is of how full Christ was of the Bible. He was not one of those who think little of the Word of God. He was saturated with it. He could not speak even in his death without uttering the Scriptures. Jesus shows us how to die with the Word of God in our mouth, with the Word of God in our heart. And it's not just the rote memory of those things. It's it's there. It's emblazoned on our heart. Jesus is our standard for living, for suffering, for dying. But look, secondly, Jesus is our substitute. And this is good. Verses 23 and 24, in order to keep Christ as the focal point of your life, you must think of Him and you must rejoice in Him as your substitute. 
If we're to live in these difficult, dark days, we need to recover big words like vicarious. It's a reference to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice. We need to recover words like propitiation, which is a reference to the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ actually faced the wrath of God due to our sins in our place. Listen, He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice in the place of guilty sinners. And we've got to be sure to correct the way we think about the cross of Christ. Listen, Jesus did not simply die for our sins, but Jesus, don't forget that, but Jesus died for you. He died for you. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ suffered also for you. Again, to quote Spurgeon, he said in one word, the great fact on which the Christian's hope rests is substitution. The vicarious sacrifice of Christ for the sinner. Christ being made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ offering up a true and proper substitutionary sacrifice in the place of as many as the Father gave him who are recognized by their trusting in him. This is the cardinal fact of the gospel. Spurgeon went on to say, I pray, he's standing there in that great temple, that great tabernacle, and he said, I pray that the ceiling would fall in before someone stood in this pulpit and preached anything other than the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand, in order to rightly think about Christ as our substitute, I want you to think, first of all, about His perfection. I might call this His sinless perfection. What you see Peter doing here is really stunning when you consider these verses. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What we see here, friends, and don't miss this, is the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ herein clearly proclaimed. Now, think of this. Jesus is nailed to a tree. There is the physical agony. There's no way else to speak of this. The sheer physical misery, the torment of nails being pounded through your wrists and through your ankle joints, the, the hot sun bearing down on you, The fact that your back has been flayed open through Roman scourges. You've been awake all night long and have undergone such harsh treatment. All unjustly. You can't even imagine this. If it were you and I, I mean, it would have been enough just to be without sleep to make us begin to hurl insults, death wishes at our our enemy. If you go without a cup of coffee in the morning, you're a bear. And listen. Here is Jesus, not returning reviling for reviling. He's hanging there, nailed to a tree in order to breathe. He had to push up on his nailed feet. He had to pull up on his nailed hands just to get a breath. Added to that, his bloodied back, would, his lacerated back would grind and grate against the, 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 the ruggedness of that wood. Yet, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Is that 
astonishing? If anything tells you about the sinless perfection of Jesus, this does. Do you really understand how the reality of his physical suffering validates his sinless perfection? He didn't curse men, even though he was suffering the unimaginable pain. Even though he suffered as an innocent man, he didn't curse them. He did not revile. He didn't spit at them. He didn't threaten them. Think about it. When you are treated badly, how quickly do you at least cry out for God to judge that person who treats you badly? Even if you don't revile them verbally, how quickly in your mind do you start turning and saying, get them, God, drop a piano out of the sky, do something. (laughs) Yet, when he suffered such ignoble treatment, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was the physical suffering. Add to that the spiritual suffering. He, knowing what it was that was laid before him, he willingly gave himself up for the suffering and spiritual anguish of being the one who would be cursed. No one knew the Bible like Jesus, and Jesus knew Deuteronomy 21, 23 Cursed is every man who's hanged on a tree. He would know the spiritual reality of having that curse laid upon him. He knew that he would be suffering the wrath of God against sin. Yet not only did he not curse man, he didn't what? He didn't curse God. In pain, in the agony, he he hung there having experienced the abandonment of the Father as darkness descended around him. Yet he didn't call it quits. He didn't change his mind. He took it all on himself in his own body. And that's what Peter's talking about here. You see how he wants us to look at Jesus? He wants you to look at Jesus. He wants you to think of him. He wants you to treasure him. He wants you to adore him. He wants you to pray to him, to read about him, to talk about him, to sing to him, to sing about him as your sinless substitute. That's how you keep your heart and your eyes and your mind riveted on Jesus in these days. You look at the life of Jesus, you read of his life, you read of his words and his works and And you become convinced of his sinless perfection. You see his beaten and bloodied body hanging on the cross and you listen to his words. Father, forgive them. Words of pardon. Words of promise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Words of provision. Woman, behold your son. Man, behold your mother. Words of prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words of pain from parched lips as he said, I thirst. Words of purpose, it is finished. Words of protection as he entrusts himself to God. He is the perfect, sinless substitute. But not only do we see his perfection, think of him in terms of his payment. Do you see what he says? Verse 24. He himself bore. Underline that word, circle it, highlight it, do whatever you have to do to draw your attention to it because it's important. He himself bore our sins. He himself, that's emphatic. He and he alone. 
He and he by himself in his own body. No room for mistake here. No room for compromise. No room for fudging. Christ and Christ alone took this on himself. And he did so willingly as a substitutionary sacrifice. This isn't divine child abuse. This is the Lord Jesus Christ willingly facing the cross. But notice what he says. He bore our sins. John MacArthur pointed out that this phrase is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. But while it's only used two times in the New Testament, a phrase like this is used throughout the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 14, Numbers chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 18. So the point I'm making is this, that Peter's use of it here is actually informed by the use in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, when we read the phrase, bore their sins or bore his iniquity, it is always used to refer to punishment, penalty, bearing iniquity, bearing sin is to be punished for sin. It is referring to the penalty of sin. That was the payment that was made in our place. He suffered the consequences of sin, namely the wrath of God. Why? Romans 3.25, For God put him forward as a propitiating sacrifice. A wrath-bearing sacrifice. And that's the heart of the gospel, friends. Without that, there's no salvation apart from this great truth. When Jesus died... He died to make a payment, to actually make atonement. He died to actually bear the punishment or the penalty for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Only believers can know with certainty. Only believers can know with certainty that the punishment that is rightfully theirs has been paid. Did you hear that? Only believers. No one else can know for certain. A believer is the only one who can say with assurance, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And take a bold stand and come as it were hell or high water. Nothing moves you off of that rock. A believer can say, the price for me was paid on Calvary's tree. Christ our substitute. You think of his perfection. Think of his payment. But then think of his purchase. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That, so that, purpose clause, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. There is here a legal aspect that is brought into account. He died, as it were. He died for me. He died in my stead so that when he died, I died. He died and I died because he died for me. And because of that glorious truth, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
No accusation can ever stand against the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has died in Christ. I remember hearing a story of a young man. This was in the French Revolution. And he was accused of a crime against the government and he was sentenced to death. And the day came for his execution. And as they were going to get him, uh, they announced his name. And instead of this man stepping forward, his father, with the exact same name, stood up in his place and went to the executioner's axe. His head rolled that day and his son went free. And that's what Christ did for us. He died to set us free from the penalty of our sin. Praise the Lord. But listen, he, did, he, he died to free us, not just from the penalty of sin, that's what we see here, but he died to free us from the power of sin so that we might live to righteousness. We died to sin, sin's penalty, live to righteousness, sin's power. To live in the righteousness of Christ accounted on our behalf, but also to live in righteousness no more under the consuming power of sin. Praise the Lord, I can say, Christian, you no longer have to serve that sin. You no longer have to live in that sin. Why? Well, just look at the picture he gives us here. He draws our mind back to that great gospel sermon in Isaiah 53. And he summarizes it for us right here. This is so marvelous. He said that, by his wounds, he quotes Isaiah 53, 5, by his wounds, we or you have been healed. Now this is not, as some say, a physical healing that is being spoken about here. It is a spiritual healing. It matches the context. It is healing in terms of the reconciliation between God and man. It is healing in terms of the securing for the believer and only for the believer a right standing before God. I like what H.B. Charles about this said. He said, quoting from Matthew 8, 17, he, he declares that Isaiah 53, 5 is fulfilled through the healing ministry Jesus performed during his life, not the atoning sacrifice he performed during his death. Now listen. This is not to say that Jesus is unwilling or unable to heal the sick, but the primary emphasis is on the spiritual sickness, not the physical sickness. We are sin sick. No hospital can address it. No medicine can relieve it. No doctor can cure it. Only the mortal wounds Jesus suffered on the cross uh, can heal us forever from the sickness of our souls. You see... Isn't it interesting, by the way, that those false teachers who are themselves deceived, who are always teaching us that the Lord Jesus Christ purchased physical healing for us on the cross, the very ones who are teaching that are the ones who are teaching it while they're wearing glasses? Think about that. They're the very ones who, you know, who walk with a limp. They're the very ones who, who take their heart medicine in the morning. This is not a physical healing that Jesus is talking about. That healing will come, praise the Lord, in the glorification. That spiritual healing will lead to a physical healing in the glorification. Think of Jesus, our substitute. Think of, of His uh, perfection. Think of His payment. Think what He 
purchased for us. He purchased redemption. He purchased reconciliation. He purchased this spiritual healing between us and God. When you think about Jesus, think about Him like that. Think about Christ, our standard. Think about Christ, our substitute. Think about Christ, our Savior. Look at verse 25. For or because you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to just conclude this morning by looking here at this verse, and I really hope that you'll pay very close attention. I want you to look at this. You and I, okay, you and I were straying like sheep. And that should be a very vivid picture for us. Sheep often get distracted. Sheep often move on to other things and to other places. And when they do, they end up getting themselves into big trouble. And that's what the Bible says we have done. That's what the Bible says we are. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul uses this text to teach regarding the total depravity of man. The fact that sin touches every area of life. In other words, there is no one good, not even one, no one who does good. Morally, spiritually, we are ruined before God. But what? But, you were straying like sheep, but now have turned or returned to. Sometimes it's the little words that just matter big time. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That word to, epi, is is a word that is so important. And I love what Dr. Zodiati says about it. He said that this word means on or upon in reference to place. In a great variety of relations which may, however, be understood under two leading ideas of resting upon or motion towards. Resting upon or motion towards. Now let me give you an illustration that might help you to think about this. Remember Luke 15? Jesus is giving a series of parables and the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. He said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Now, you put those texts together. Luke 15, 4 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, you put them together side by side, you will notice that Peter is speaking from the believer's standpoint and says, you have returned to the shepherd. Jesus, in Luke 15, gives us the backstory, if you will. He is actually the seeking shepherd. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he doesn't stop until he finds that lost sheep. And when he does, what does he do? He lays it 
upon his shoulder and what? Carries the sheep all the way home. When you come to Christ, it's because he came to you. He picks you up and you rest in him. That's the thought of that word too. Resting on the shepherd. Like, maybe, maybe think of it like this. Like my little grandson getting lost at the playground. And I go seeking for him. And then I, I say, Harvey, tap on the back. And he turns around and says, Pap! What? I found you! Yeah, Harvey, you found me. Now let's go to Chick-fil-A. That's what a believer does. A believer comes to Christ. A believer looks to Christ. And what does Christ do? Well, he does what he does. He is who he is, a shepherd. He shepherds, he oversees, episcopos, he looks out over. The idea here is provision and protection. He provides and he protects. He's the one who gives his life for the sheep and takes the sheep in in order to bring him to himself. That's the key. The Lord Jesus Christ shepherds and oversees our souls. And that is a joy, my friends. He guides, he protects, he provides and protects our soul. Our soul is what? Who we really are. Who we really are is completely entrusted to Him and He will deliver us completely. That's exactly what He says over in chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, salvation is from the wrath of God to the Son of God. That's our Savior. He wants you to think of that seeking, searching Savior who goes out on the hills wild and bare all to look for that singularly lost sheep. And, when he, and he looks until he finds it. And when he finds it, he picks the sheep up. The sheep rests on his shoulders and he takes that sheep all the way home. That's how you're to think of Christ. If we are to live the Christian life in these dark, difficult days, Peter would say, we must look to Jesus. We must see Him as presented to us in the Word. And when we do, we'll see Him as our standard for living, for suffering, for dying. We'll see Him as our substitute the perfectly sinless substitute who paid the price, made the purchase of our reconciliation to God. We'll see Him as our Savior, the shepherd, the overseer, the provider, protector of our souls who shepherds us all the way home, guides us all the way home. Nothing can ever interfere with that. No suffering. No difficulty. No enemy. No hardship. Nothing that you have to endure can stop the shepherd. Praise the Lord. That's why you keep your eyes on Him. We keep our eyes on Christ. We look to Him. I'm talking about making an effort, 
pursuing a diligent discipline of thinking about Christ as he is revealed in his word, trusting him to be who he is and to do what he does, appreciating him, speaking to him, reading about him, worshiping him, talking to others about him, singing to him, singing about him, relying on him, instead of making the focus of your life all the wickedness you see around you and even the suffering that you feel on you, put Christ as the motif of your life. Get your eyes on Jesus. Maybe just a couple of questions that might help you think about this. What things have you discovered that help you keep your eyes on Jesus or keep the Lord Jesus as the focal point of your life? What practices, what disciplines help you to keep Jesus at the forefront? Are there people in your life and these people help me? Second, as you think about this today, what, in what ways does the teaching of Peter become really the foundation for Christian assurance? The foundation for you to say, this is my, on the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What, how does this teaching establish the assurance of the Christian faith? How does, how does Peter's presentation, just put it in his context now. Remember the context, and he's talking to us about submission. He's even shading over into the, to the subject of suffering, which we'll come to at the middle and the end of chapter 3. He still has to talk about submission in the home. We'll talk about that in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3. But how does Peter's presentation of the Lord encourage us in our submission, even if we have to suffer for it? How does it encourage us to keep doing good even if it requires suffering? Think about that today. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. May God use this to get our eyes onto Christ, our hearts riveted onto Christ, our minds glued to Jesus Christ so that we as Christians, man, everybody says that guy that lady, all they do is talk about, sing about, pray to, think of Christ. That's it. Paul would say, we determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. We thank You, O Lord, the great shepherd of our soul, this great text, for this great motivation to, to keep Christ at the center of our life, for this help. You've helped me, O oh Lord. And I thank you for that. And I pray that every eye and every heart, even now, would behold Christ through the eyes of faith, and that one day, our faith will become sight. Oh Lord, 
May you get glory for yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. And together, all God's people said, amen.